Jesus, we love you. And we love that um, we get to meet with you in this place. But the thing that's even greater than that is that we take your spirit uh, with us wherever we go. Uh, your spirit is in us. It's working. It's moving um, to, to reshape, to renovate, uh, to redefine uh, who we are. And, and I love that, that Christy said this, is that this is a place where we can come with all of our mess and become all that you have called us to be, all that you desire us to be, all that you want us to be, all that's possible for us to be. And that's only through Jesus. That's only through Jesus, only through the cross, uh, only through the resurrection. And so this morning, we just say thank you. Thank you that every day with you is a new from now on. Everything can change, Jesus, because of you. And we love you. We pray all this in your name. Everybody said? Amen. All right, so we kicked off this series called Monster Squad last week, and we said that there are a few universal traits that monsters have in common, like those classic monsters, the Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein. The first one is this, that, that many of the monsters that we encounter, they can disguise themselves, right, so that they look or they seem harmless at first. Now, this, for me, is one of, like, the scariest aspects of, of monsters in general. It's the fact that they can walk among us and, like, we have no idea Right, that's kind of scary. Like you could be sitting right next to a monster, walking through life. Like you could be going going out to eat or whatever. You're right next to a monster. You got no idea. They can look just like us. They can disguise themselves so that they seem harmless. Right. That's kind of the first universal trait. The second one is that there's usually something that happens. There's an event. There's a trigger. Whatever it is that causes these monsters to reveal their true nature. We said this last week, you know, for Dracula, right, it's like the sight of blood, the fangs come out. For the, the Wolfman, it's the full moon, right? For Michael Myers, it's a date on the calendar, October 31st. He just does his business on one day out of the year, right? The third kind of universal trait is that every monster, even though they seem indestructible at first, they have a weakness, as scary and as powerful as these monsters may seem to be, there's always a way to take them down. Now, here's the deal. I said this last week. We're not talking about the famous monsters from horror movies or slasher films. Right? If you're expecting to show up today and get an education on, like, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Eddie Munster, the Crypt Keeper, right? Like that's, not, like, that's not what we're doing. As scary as they are, they're not real. What we're talking about this week and over the next few weeks are the real monsters that we face every single day. These are real monsters that walk among us. These are real monsters that for some of us, they live inside of us, right? Most of the time, we have no idea how close we are to some of these monsters until it's too late. And here's what happens. Something happens in or around our lives and what's, what's it do? It's a trigger, right? It, it causes these monsters around us and the monsters that are living inside of us to kind of reveal their true nature, right? The, the fangs come out. The claws come out. There's a transformation that happens within us from, from something or someone that seems safe into something else entirely, something or someone that's ferocious or dangerous. And maybe this is us. Maybe this is the people around us. And, and last week we talked about greed, Right? We talked about this monster called greed. Today, we're going to kind of face down and unpack envy, which is kind of greed's dark, twisted cousin. Right? We're going to talk about envy here in a minute. But before we do that, here's what I want to do. I want to keep something really important in front of us as we talk about this. And that's really this. Why? Like, why are we talking about things like greed, envy, and selfishness? Like, why, are we, why, are we, why are we kicking off, essentially, a new year by talking about monsters, right? This series seems like it would go better in October, not in January, right? Like, why are we talking about this kind of stuff, right? Why are we talking about greed, envy, and selfishness, all of which, in some way, shape, or form, revolve around things like money, wealth, possession, status, influence? Like, why, like why do we have to talk about this? Well, the first reason, there's three reasons, two reasons, rather. The first one is this. Research shows that, that, that these kind of monsters, right, the monsters at the center of most family church relational conflict are things like greed, envy, and selfishness. The thing that's kind of at the center of the conflict in a lot of families and a lot of marriages and a lot of relationships in churches. If you kind of boil it all down, you find what's going on at the center. If you trace the, the, the blood trail back to where it starts, right, it starts with greed, envy, and selfishness. The reality is this. More people in churches have problems. They walk away from churches. They leave churches because the church decided to spend budget money to do X, Y, or Z, right, than the theology, 
Like, I can get up here and talk about the theology of Bozo the Clown, and people will go, uh-huh, very good, amen, thank you. And then we can say, hey, listen, we're going to spend some budget money to fix the bathrooms downstairs because they look like they came out of a horror movie. And people are like, no, absolutely not. Nope, I'm out. It's crazy. This is one of those things, that if, you tra- if you trace it all back, you can find this monster at the middle, right? More marriages are strained. More families divide and become estranged from one another. More churches split over issues of money than anything else. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, which is actually more important, Jesus talked about this. He talked about and he taught about money and wealth and possessions more than anything else. Jesus, for Jesus, dealing with these these monsters of greed, envy, and selfishness, Here's the deal. It's not just about wealth and possessions. It's not a wallet issue. It's not a wealth issue. It's not a possessions issue. It's bigger than that. For Jesus, it's a whole life issue, right? It encompasses every aspect of our lives. And I said this last week, but I want to make sure that we get this. For Jesus, when it comes to kind of wealth and status and influence, those things that we hunger for, our possessions, riches, those kinds of things, For Jesus, it was all about answering this faith question, which is this. Who or what is ultimate in your life? Like, stop and think about that for a second. Like, who or what is ultimate in your life? Who sits on the throne of your life and calls the shots? Like, who's in charge? Who's leading you? For Jesus, it was all about this this question. And here's the deal. How we answer this question is, is who or what do we believe in? And we have confidence. We, we put the most trust, the most confidence, the most belief in whatever this thing is, right? That they're going to be the thing that best takes care of us and gives us what we need. Whoever or whatever that is, is what we make ultimate, right? Whatever fills in that blank at the end of that question is what you and I really have faith in. And what we have faith in, we will put on the throne of our lives. But it doesn't stop there, right? Whoever or whatever we have faith in and we make ultimate, which is what we believe in and trust, We'll also get our faithfulness. It's a dedicated way of living, right? When you think about faith and faithfulness, faith is what you believe in and trust and have confidence in that will best take care of you and provide for you. Faithfulness is how you dedicate your life to whatever that is or whoever that is. And here's the thing. Faithfulness always follows faith, right? That's how it works. You're going to dedicate your life to something. So the reason that Jesus talked about and taught about money, wealth, and possessions more than anything else, it's not a matter of Jesus wanting more or needing more money, wealth, and possessions. For Jesus, dealing with the monsters of greed, envy, and selfishness is really a matter of faith. It's faith. It's what we make ultimate. It's what you and I choose to believe in. We place our trust in it. We have more confidence in whoever or whatever that is that they're going to take care of us than anything else. We make them ultimate. So it's a matter of faith, but it's also a matter of faithfulness, what you dedicate your life to. That's why Jesus cares about this so much. And here's a hard truth. Here's a hard reality. Material wealth and possessions have been right? They were, back in the day, the thing that Jesus competed with the most for this ultimate space in the lives of people, and that hasn't changed. So back in the day, a couple thousand years ago, when Jesus was in, in the midst of his public ministry, the thing that Jesus knew he competed with the most in people's lives was money, wealth, possession, status, those kinds of things. That hunger for those kinds of things. That's why when you see Jesus talk about money, or you see Jesus talk about wealth or possessions, he usually talks about our hearts right after that. Right? You see this time and time in Scripture. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. Right? Whatever you serve, right, you're going to make that your master. Like You will live your life in service to whatever lives on the throne of your life. And that's the same for us today. It's the same for us today. Jesus competes the most with wealth, money, and possessions for this ultimate space in our lives, what you and I believe in, what we trust in, what we put confidence in, and then what we are faithful to, what we dedicate our lives to. And here's the deal. Jesus is not cool with the silver medal. He's just not. Like, Jesus isn't like, hey, listen, I came and lived this life, right? I lived this example of what life is supposed to look like, what the with God life can look like. It's possible for you. I came and lived this life. I died to free humanity 
from the power of sin and death. And then guess what? I didn't stay dead. Right? I didn't do all of that to settle for the silver or the bronze in your life. Right? Jesus is not cool with second place. He's not cool with second place in our lives, especially when it comes to something that ultimately at the end of the day can harm us and can hurt us. All right, so that's kind of why we're talking about this. Jesus cares about this because ultimately what Jesus cares about is what you and I make ultimate, what, we, what sits on the throne of our lives. And if it's anything other than him, he's going to speak into that. He's going to speak. He says, listen, and we talk about this a lot at Adventure. you got two deals on the table. You can keep living your life the way that you're living your life, but how's that really working out for you? Or maybe you can try this which is the with God life, what Jesus offers us, a life that puts Jesus on the throne, right, puts everything under him. What's that life look like? So what we're going to talk about today is envy. And again, what we talked about is envy is kind of greed's dark, twisted cousin. Like they've got a lot in common. Greed and envy have a lot in common, but their differences in terms of how they play out in our lives is massive. Now, just so we get kind of a visual aid of what, like, greed is like. I mean, you kind of think of greed as, as maybe like, like Jack Sparrow, right? So you think of greed, that's Johnny Depp, right? Johnny Depp plays Jack Sparrow, which he's a pirate, so you're not quite sure. I mean, he's a bad guy, but I guess he's, like, the best form of a bad guy. He's still a bad guy. Like, he's still a pirate. You can't trust him, right? So that's greed. Like, you can't trust greed. Greed's a bad guy. Greed's a monster. You don't want to let greed anywhere near your life. Right, because greed, like Jack Sparrow, is going to promise you all this stuff and then maybe try to take it away at some point, right? So if this is greed, Johnny Depp playing, playing Jack Sparrow, then, then this is envy, right? Johnny Depp playing Edward Scissorhands, right? So, again, dark, twisted cousin of envy. It's like, you, like pirate, it's like, eh, you know, he's on a ride in Disney. He's charming. He's kind of funny. Edward Scissorhands is like, yikes, and for some of you, if that illustration didn't work, we'll try this one, right? We'll try this. There you go. Try this. Like, so this is like Spider-Man in Spider-Man 1, and then there's like goth Spider-Man. So that, like, this is what, if you want to picture greed and envy, like if they came in the room together at the same time, they would look like this, right? It's like one is clearly, like one is like, oh, man, there's some power. Like greed's powerful, but then there's envy. You're like, whoa, like what's envy all about? There's lots of similarities, but also there's some Pretty significant differences. You got your Bibles with you or your Bible apps. Open those up to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be living in Luke 12. We were there last week too. But I just want to give some quick context as we're kind of context as we're kind of flipping to this place. So Jesus, Jesus is in the middle of teaching in Luke 12, and then two guys kind of in the middle of Jesus' teaching get in a fight. They get in a fight over money, and then what they do is they ask Jesus in the middle of his teaching to settle the fight. And like I said last week, a word of warning, anytime you ask Jesus to settle conflict in your life, expect that he might just turn your whole world upside down, right? That's what he does. I mean, it's like, Jesus, we want you to settle this, like settle who owes who money, right? And Jesus is like, well, let me just kind of turn your whole reality on its head, right? And that's what he does. Jesus, he taught this parable, we talked about it last week, about this greedy guy who has all of this stuff, and instead of giving his stuff away, instead of sharing his stuff, he built bigger barns and just kept it all for himself. But check out where Jesus goes next. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. It says this, And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. For life, Jesus says, is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. And then Jesus says, like, Consider the ravens. Look at the birds. Right? They, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them, takes care of them. Like ravens don't go out and gather stuff and store it, right? But still, God feeds them and, and takes care of them. And then Jesus says this, of how much more value are you to God than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And then if you're not able to do such a small thing as that, then why are you anxious about the rest of your life. And then he says this, consider the lilies. Like the flowers in the fields, they, they grow. And they don't, they don't worry about growing. They don't worry about that. He said, they neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon is an Old Testament king, son of, the king, son of King David, the wisest man that ever lived, the most rich man that ever lived, had more resources than anybody else. And Jesus is saying, listen, the richest guy to ever live 
wasn't ordained, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't covered, wasn't as beautiful, wasn't as put together as the lilies in the field. So if, he says this, if God cares about grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, then how much more will he clothe you, oh, you of little faith? I told you, if you ask Jesus to settle some conflict in your life, he might just turn your whole reality upside down. And so, like I said, it's, it's, not a, it's not a stuff issue. For Jesus, it's not a wallet issue. It's a life issue. It's a heart issue. It's a faith issue. It's a faithfulness issue. But catch this. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that as Jesus kind of wraps up this teaching and this story about greed, the very next breath, Jesus starts talking about anxiety. Like That's not an accident. If you don't think that Jesus gets what it's like to be human. If you don't think that, that Jesus understands the nature of the human experience, then this should be all the proof that you need that Jesus 100% gets us. Jesus could totally read the room then just like he could today. And he knows that when you and I, when we start talking about wealth, money, and possessions, our blood pressure starts rising just a little bit. We start to get a little anxious. Our, our, our pulse starts to race. This, this past week, we sat down at our house to work on our budget, right? And my Apple Watch kept giving me these high heart rate alerts. Like, so Christy and I are sitting down, and like, we're going through, like, our checking accounts. We're going back and looking at all of our statements, trying to create some averages of what we spend on different things a month, trying to figure out where here are our fixed costs, here are all of our subscriptions, here's, like, medications and doctor visits and, and all those kinds of things. And it's like, as, we kept, as I kept writing, like, different, like, next line item, next line item, it's like my watch kept going, hey, Brad, you're having a heart attack. And I'm like, No. I'm just doing the family budget, right? Like, I'm not, like, I'm like, but it was, it was like, my watch was like, should I call someone? You know, should I call someone? Should we, should we call the police? Should we call EMS? Like, Brad, you're not okay. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm just, I'm just talking money in my house. And see, and that's what envy preys on. That's what envy preys on. Steve Carter, in the book, The Thing Beneath the Thing, don't worry, I know some of you guys have PTSD, right? We're not going back into that, right? But he says this, he says that, that envy is, is rooted in insecurity, don't miss that. See, envy is rooted in insecurity, and while they have a lot in common, right, greed and envy, one of the major differences between them is this. Greed is focused on keeping for yourself, but envy is focused on taking from others. It's one of the major differences. See, envy has this kind of extra, like, hidden motivator, and the key differences between greed and envy kind of lie in the why, the why behind them. See, greed wants what it doesn't have, right? Re greed wants more. It wants what it doesn't have, and it wants more of what it doesn't have. But envy still wants what it doesn't have, but here's what it does. It also resents and hates those that have what it wants. That's why envy is a little bit different. In Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon, he says this. He looked out and he said, I saw all the toil. So all the work, all the skilled work that comes from a man's envy of his neighbor, all toil and all skilled work come from a man's envy of his neighbor, which means this. The primary motivator is Solomon, in all of his wisdom and in all of his wealth, looked out and saw humanity, right? He said that the primary motivator, what his observation was, the primary motivator behind why you and I do what we do isn't to earn a living, but it's to be better than the person next to us. That's what Solomon says. He says, listen, all toil, all work, all trial, all skilled work doesn't come from this pure place of trying to make the world better or trying to put food on the table or trying to take care of your family. He would say, no, what I see is this, that all toil and all work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. It's not to earn a living. It's to be better than the person next to you. And Solomon, when he sees that, says this, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes, he writes that a lot. Striving after the wind is basically this. It's pointless. You're not going to catch it, right? You can't bottle it up. You're just chasing the wind. It's a meaningless pursuit. In Proverbs, David writes this. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It's poisonous. It's deadly. 
And James, the, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, if you don't think you get what envy feels like, try growing up as Jesus' half-brother, right? Like James, I think, probably knew a thing or two about envy. Here's what he says in James 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Rhetorical question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That word passions comes from the Greek word that means hedonism. It's hedonistic. Which means this, that, that, that your pursuit of pleasure is, over, is the overriding desire in your life. So that word for passions is the word that we get. It's, it's, it's that the pleasure in your life is the overriding desire and nothing can stand in its way. You want to know what causes fights? That, that you taking care of you is the overriding desire in your life. I'm not worried about anybody else. I'm not worried about anybody else getting their share. I'm not worried about anybody else getting their, getting to the table. I just want to make sure that I get to the table and I get mine. And if they get nothing, then so be it. That's the overriding desire in my life. And nothing can stand in its way. James says this, you desire and do not have, so what do you do? You murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so what do you do? You fight and quarrel. And he says this, you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Yikes, right? I mean, like, and all God's people said, ouch. I mean, this is one of those things, like, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to Jesus. It's a big deal. It was a big deal to the Old Testament kings and rulers. It's a big deal to one of the leaders of the first churches, right? Envy is a big deal. There was, there was a, a study done recently by Harvard and they asked this question. They, asked, they surveyed a, a bunch of people. They asked this question. They said, would you rather have $50,000 and everybody else around you has $25,000? So that's your first choice. You get $50,000 and then all of your friends and neighbors, we're going to give them $25,000. Or here's your other option. Would you rather have $100,000? We're going to give you hundred grand cash today. But everybody else, all your friends and neighbors, they're going to get $200,000. You have two choices. Choose. 50,000 and everybody else gets 25 or you get 100 double the amount that we would normally give you but everybody else gets 200. Here's how people answered out of all those surveyed 85% said that they would take 50,000 instead of 100,000. They'd take half. They would take half of what they could knowing that by taking less at least they were better off than other people around them. Knowing that, that by taking less, it would cause more stress in life. You know what? $100,000 would cure a lot of ills. right? I'd be, pay, I'd be able to pay off a whole lot of debt. $50,000 still would help. But you know what? I, I, I know that, that with $100,000, I could do it. Here's the deal. fifty. I'll take that stress. I'll take the stress of knowing that, that, that yeah, I could be better off. But here's the thing. At $50,000, at least I'm better off than everybody else around me. That's envy. That's what it looks like, and that's how it works. I'll take less knowing that I'm better than everyone else. And here's the risk. See, the risk of greed, like we talked about last week, is a meaningless life that's wasted on pointless pursuits. The risk of envy includes all of that. Envy will also lead you to a meaningless life full of pointless pursuits. But in addition to that, the risk of envy is a poisoned life, consumed by anger and bitterness and resentment. Here's what envy does. It hijacks. It hijacks our lives and sets us on a course to kill and steal and destroy. And you might be thinking, well, that's not me. Like, that's not me. I don't want to kill anybody. Like, I don't want to steal from anyone. I don't want to destroy. I've never, Brad, in my life set out to destroy another human being. Not so fast. Think about this for a second. Think about maybe a time in your life when someone in your office got a promotion. Or when a neighbor came home with a new car. Or maybe when some friends of yours went on a really nice vacation. Or I know we got some students in the room. Students in the room, think about this. Think about when, when somebody you know gets elected to student council or somebody you know gets elected to homecoming court. Regardless of what it is, whether it's a promotion in your office, family gets to go on a really nice vacation, they buy a new car, or so anything in between. You hear about that, and your first reaction is this. Them? Like, th them? 
they got a new car, they got a they got elected to student council, they got elected, they they made it on the homecoming court. Like if that's your first reaction, I mean you see we think to ourselves, well, why did like what did they do to deserve that? I mean, I work just as hard as they do. I guess it must be nice to drive around this fancy new car. I wonder how much debt they had to go into to get it because we know they can't afford it. Must be nice to, to go and, and have this vacation and, and sit on the beach somewhere and be lazy. Some of us, some of us actually have to work for a living. Good for you. Or maybe it's this, like, I'm prettier than they are. I'm smarter than, than they are. Like, I'm a better leader than they are. And here's the thing. Maybe all of those thoughts just stay in your head. Like, maybe when you hear about that, all those thoughts stay in your head. But here's what I know. They usually don't. Most of the time, what do we do? We gossip. You know, you know they only got that promotion because they kiss up to the boss, right? Like, the boss was just looking for a yes person. So, like, like they don't have a free-thinking, like, cell in their brain, right? That's the only reason they got that promotion. They just kiss up to the boss. You know, she's only on the homecoming court as a sympathy vote. Like, I heard the family down the street had to take out a huge loan to buy that car. I, mean, I guess that shows where their priorities are. You know where the, one of the number one symptoms and signs that the monster at Envy has its claws into your heart and your soul is gossip. You want to know if the monster of Envy is in your life? or around your life, or maybe has its claws and its fangs sunk deep into your life, it's gossip. And I'm going to be totally straight with you. Envy is, envy is sinful, but so is every symptom and action in your life that comes from it. Envy is sinful, and so is everything that it causes in your life, including gossip, including self-righteousness. Like, I'm so much better than they are. I work so much harder than them. You know, some of us, it's okay. It's okay. I'll fall on the sword for the company. I'll keep working. You guys go on and get your promotions. That's self-righteousness. Entitlement. I deserve. I deserve this. Why? Because I'm good. I'm better. Entitlement. All of those things. Gossip, self-righteousness, entitlement, the list can go on and on. All of that is sinful. Why? Because it comes out of a sinful thing called envy. Steve Carter says this, that when we live our lives driven by envy, we operate as if we're in competition with everybody around us, which ultimately lands in isolation and lack of trust. He says someone who is mesmerized by envy can't celebrate the successes or the good fortunes of someone else. When someone else succeeds, it's taken as a personal loss, meaning for someone else to win, it means that you have to lose. If someone in your office gets a promotion or maybe somebody in your office gets the opportunity to do something pretty cool, and you're like, that's great. They won. I lost. I had a conversation with one of my good friends, Jason, who's a pastor up in Champaign, Illinois, one time. We worked together in student ministry for a while. And I remember he got an invitation to go play golf at Valhalla with, with some of the elders. And I'm like, ooh, Valhalla. Like, let me just say this. I'm terrible at golf. I hate golf. I don't ever want to play golf. Like, I'm not, like, it's not a sport that I enjoy. Right? I, here's what I like to do, driving the cart around, right? If you need a caddy, I'm your guy. I can't tell you where, like, where, where, like, just shoot towards the flag. Like, that's the thing, right? Like, I'll drive your golf cart around. I hate it. But I'm like, ooh, cool, Jason, Valhalla, you must have kissed up to the elders. Like, and he's like, hey, and he looked at me and he said, hey, why can't you just be happy for me? Oh. And ever since then, I've thought about that. I've thought about that moment. And I'm like, you know what, you're right. Good for you, man. Like, that's awesome that you get those opportunities. That's awesome that you get a chance to do that. And every time I hear about somebody else getting to do something cool or, or getting to have a cool experience, and in, in me there's this thing that wants to go, oh, yeah, whatever, I guess you must have done this, you must have sold your soul for that. There's a part of me that goes like, you know what, Brad, just be happy for me. It's so much easier. One of the other authors I read this week said this, that envy seeks to choke out the good in and the good for others while also destroying the joy and the goodness in us. That's what it does. Envy is a really scary monster. And not only do we waste our lives because of envy, but we also become poisoned and sickened by anger and resentment and bitterness. So the question is this, how do we kill envy? Last week we talked about how do we kill greed? We kill greed with courageous simplicity, right? And we talked about courage has to be a part of this. 
You can't step into these battles with these monsters and not also have courage go with you. Without courage, you're taking an empty weapon, right, an unloaded weapon, a dull sword, a dull spear, whatever it is. You're taking an ineffective weapon into battle if courage is not a part of it. So how do we kill this? How do we kill envy so that our lives don't become poisoned by anger and resentment and bitterness? We kill envy with courageous generosity. That's what we use to kill envy. Courageous generosity is the stake through the heart of envy. And the with God life, the life that Jesus leads us into, right? The with God life is a courageously generous life. If you want to know, the life of believers and followers of Jesus, is they're, they're marked by, our lives should be marked by generosity. Jesus said this to his disciples, that, that people will know you, they'll know that you belong to me by the way you love each other. And in that, love, love is a generous thing. It's intended to be, right? Love becomes a junk drawer word here, right? But love, in Jesus, like the way that Jesus defined love, agape love, the love that the Father has for us, is a love feast. It's offered, right? Love is generous. And the with God life, right? It's, it's a generous life. It's a courageously generous life. And here's what this means. Courageous generosity means that there's a readiness and a willingness to give and provide for others, not an obligation or an ulterior motive. Right? Again, if you're taking notes, you want to grab a screenshot, this is a good one. Because this is kind of the definition of courageous generosity. There's a readiness and a willingness to give and provide for others, not an obligation or an ulterior motive. We're going to unpack that. Right? So what does that look like? How do we use this? See, courageous generosity is like this ultimate weapon to take down one of the most ultimate monsters. And because of that, it's not formed by just one ingredient. Courageous generosity is actually a few ingredients that come together to make the ultimate weapon to take down the monster of envy. Jesus says this, again, go back in Luke 12, starting at verse 29. He says this, don't seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. He says, listen, the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Listen, I'm not meaning, I don't want to get super uber political, right? But this is one of those moments where you go, listen, like, the worry and the concern about getting yours, making sure you're at the front of the line, he says, listen, the, nation, like, the, the nations of the world seek after these things. Like, I don't know that there's ever been a more defining characteristic of politics in our country right now than greed and envy. I mean, it's, you watch the stuff that unfolds. It's wild. Everybody's looking to take down somebody. That's envy. I don't just want what you have. I want what you have, and I hate you because you have it. It's wild. He says, listen, all of the nations seek after these things. But guess what? God knows you need them. He knows that you need food to eat. He knows you need things to drink. He said, instead, do this. Seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. And then I love this. Jesus, comforting Jesus, his fear not little flock. For it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, where no moth destroys. And here he goes, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So according to Jesus, courageous generosity starts with a shift from this earthly perspective and pursuit of worth, wealth, and well-being to a kingdom perspective and pursuit of worth, wealth, and well-being. That's the first place. That's the first ingredient. Right? In the middle of this teaching on envy, greed, and anxiety, Jesus, he makes this promise. If you seek God's kingdom, he'll make sure you have everything that you need. So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to worry. Why? Because God actually wants to give you what you need. And by letting go of your pursuit and the perspective of earthly worth and well-being, and instead of doing that, pursuing this kingdom perspective of worth and well-being, you'll actually trade temporary worth and well-being that can be devalued, get lost, get old, stolen, or destroyed. You'll trade that for kingdom worth and well-being that doesn't grow old, that can't be stolen, that can't be lost, that isn't devalued and never gets destroyed. That seems like a good trade. Again, two deals on the table. What kind of wealth? What kind of wealth? And well-being do you want? Something that can be devalued, lost, stolen, or destroyed, or something that can't? Choose. 
How do you want to live your life? You want to keep doing it the way you've been doing it? Or do you want to trust Jesus? Jesus says literally this, shift your pursuit, shift your perspective, and you'll find that all of the things that you need will be added to you. Well, what things? Everything. Everything in your life right now that causes anxiety and insecurity that leads to the monster of envy poisoning your life with anger and bitterness and resentment, right? The insecurity of what you wear, the insecurity of what you eat, the insecurity of where you live, and on down the line. Jesus says, listen, if God can take care of and cares about birds, grass, and flowers, don't you think he can take care of you? So the first step, church, in you and I becoming courageously generous people, right, is we have to change what we're looking for, what we're looking at, and what we're chasing after in life. And this is the truth, right? What you look for, you'll live for. And what you'll live for, you'll die for. So you got to ask yourself this question. Is what you're currently looking for and living for worth dying for? Can what you're currently looking for and living for, can it make the promises that even come remotely close to what, what Jesus just promised when it comes to the pursuit and the perspective of kingdom worth and wealth and well-being? Bigger question is this. Are you 100% sure that what you're looking for and living for right now can really follow through on what they've promised. If the answer is no, or even if there's like a second of hesitation, here's the truth. Your perspective and your pursuit in life is opening up and it's exposing your life to the force of envy, the destructive force of envy, and that needs to change. If there's any hesitation to go, you know what, I'm not quite sure that the thing that I'm looking for or living for right now, right now can actually follow through on what it's promised. If you check up just a little bit, here's what that means. You've left the door open somewhere in your life to envy, and there needs to be a shift ASAP. You need to shift your pursuit, your perspective, to become courageously generous before it's too late. William Law said this. This is an old quote. He said, he therefore is a devout man who lives no longer to his own will or the way and will of the spirit of the world, but to the will of God who considers God in everything, who serves God in everything, who makes all of the parts of his common life holy, and by doing everything in the name of and in the nature of God. It's shifting away from an old perspective and turning into a new one. That's the first step in becoming courageously generous. The second part of this, the second ingredient of, of killing, right, what we need to kill envy is this, stewardship. Stewardship step two. Stewardship is this. It's being in charge of somebody else's stuff. We don't talk about stewardship much in kind of modern culture, but back in Jesus' day, it was a normal thing. It was a common practice in Jesus' day to hire people to kind of run and take care of and kind of manage to invest your resources. See, for the owner, when an owner was looking to hire a steward, the mindset and the expectation was this. You're going to care for what's mine like it was yours while knowing it's not. That makes sense? It was a big deal. You're going to take care of what, what's mine as if it was yours, knowing that it's not. The expectation for care and responsibility was higher, not lower. And that was the mindset of the steward as well, right? The, the, one, the person that owns this trusts me enough to take care of it, so there's nothing casual about it, right? A lot of the time, the way we treat stuff that doesn't belong to us, we treat it like it doesn't belong to us. Right? We're kind of nonchalant about it. Think about the last time you drove a rental car. Right? How'd you, would you drive your car like you drove? No, man. It's like I was drifting, like going over medians, like whatever. It's like it's just a rental, right? We're pretty nonchalant about stuff that doesn't belong to us, but that's not what it means to be a steward. Being a steward means that we understand both what it is that we're meant to care for, like what we're given. We understand that and how the owner wants us to care for it. Part of the shift, right, in this perspective and pursuit is an invitation from God to know him, right? The first step in stewardship is not taking care of God's stuff. It's an invitation from God to go, hey, get to know me. I think that's awesome. God invites us to be stewards, but the first thing he wants us to do is he wants us to get to know him and, wants, and he wants to get to know us. And from that place of knowing him and knowing us, we can care for what he's given us, how he wants us to care for it. Here's the deal, right? All of the resources that we have, everything that you have right now in your life is on loan from God to you. Nothing you have is really and truly your own. Your talent, your abilities, your skills, your money, your possessions, it's not yours. It's on loan from God to you. And as stewards, we're to care for this as if they were his 
and we're to use our resources as if it were God using them. So it's not just, well, how am I going to use my stuff today? It's, how would God use my stuff today? Really, how would God use his stuff that he gave me today? That's what it means to be a steward. And the last thing, and we're going to wrap up here, the last element that, that forms courageous generosity is this, actually giving. It's a shift in perspective from an earthly perspective to a kingdom perspective. It's a shift in understanding, understanding the value of our stuff and who really owns it and how we use it. But it doesn't just stop and shifts and changes in perspective. It, it moves into action. The last step is actually doing it. It's like 12-step program, the 12th step. And 12-step programs is leading somebody else through it. Right? You've gone through it, now lead somebody else through it. In this case, the last ingredient that makes courageous generosity lethal to envy is actually doing something about this. Courageous generosity, we talked about how it starts, but where it ends and where it actually becomes active, where it becomes this weapon, is when we become readily and willingly, we willingly give our money, our time, our resources to our families, to our friends, to those in need, the church, without any ulterior motives. Jesus says this in Matthew 6. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you're going to have your reward. You have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that, you, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Jesus says, give in such a way. That your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. And what that means is this. Give in such a way that you really don't have to think about it. It's just a natural part of your life. For us in Jesus' kingdom, authentic generosity is a way of living. It's not just a task to be done. Giving and generosity, courageous generosity, flows out of who we are. So give in a way that's natural. That's what it means to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give in a way that's natural, and you don't have to think about it. Like, I don't have to think about breathing. I just breathe. Like, I don't go, oh, Brad, you should take a breath right now. Can you imagine if we had to remind ourselves to breathe all the time? We don't have to think about that. We just do it. Jesus says, give in such a way, be generous in such a way that it's just a natural part of who you are, that it's as simple and as easy as breathing. And in Scripture, the Old Testament, Jesus talks about this in the New Testament, there's this thing called tithing. Tithing is kind of this old school biblical tradition. And what happens is this. In tithing, anytime that there was a harvest, so again, farmers, whenever they would harvest their crop, instead of giving God what's left over from their crop, they would take the first 10%, the first fruits is what they called it. The first 10% and they would take it to the temple and they would offer it up. That's what tithing is. And what people would say, and back in, this, back in that day, is that, that here's what I'm doing. By, by taking this 10%, the first fruit, not what's left over, not the junk that's left over, but the absolute best right off the top. I'm going to take this, I'm going to offer it up at temple, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to survive on 90%. I'm going to give up 10%. I'm going to survive on 90% because I have faith that God will provide in that space. Tithing is not an obligation. Tithing is not something that, that the church does to con you out of your money, right? Churches, this church, we operate out of the generosity of other people, right? That's how we operate. That's how we keep the lights on. That's how we send money out the door to our mission partners. That's how we continue to be able to fund ministries. We operate out of people's generosity. And that generosity comes from tithing. Right? And again, it's this, tithing is not a way for us to go like, we're not going to play sad song like, like March student ministry up here with like sad faces. Like, look, it's for the kids. Look how sad they are. A dollar a day will feed one of these kids. Like we're playing Sarah McLaughlin music and you're all like, fine, just take it. Right? That's not what we're going to do. We're not going to do that. That's not what tithing is about. That's, that's, actually, that's actually a con, Right? What we want, when we talk about tithing here, it's because we want to lean more into faith. Tithing is not just a money thing. Tithing is a faith and faithfulness thing. It's saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to give God a percentage right off the top of what's best, not what's left. And I'm going to trust him in that space that I'm giving up, no questions asked, no ulterior motives. I'm going to trust that he's going to provide for me. I'm going to give up 10%. I'm going to live on 90%. I'm going to trust that God's going to make these ends connect. Why? Because Jesus says, 
if, if I do that, he makes this promise. If I seek his kingdom, he'll take care of me. Christy and I, we give 10%. We give 10% here to the church. We choose to live on 90%. Let me just tell you this. That wasn't always the case in the past when we were involved in ministry. It wasn't the case. But we had to grow up a little bit. We had to grow up in our faith, and we had a hard conversation. The hard conversation of figuring out, all right, what are we going to have to give up? Maybe some things we have to cancel. There may be some things we don't get to do. Why? But we got to trust. This is, not about, this is not about checking a box and saying, yeah, I give 10%, right? It's not about checking a box or, or an obligation, but it's about a faith thing. We had to grow up in our faith. We had to put our big boy and big girl pants on in our faith to trust that God was going to provide in that space of what we were giving up. And as a church, we've done, this, we've done the same, but we didn't start there. Like when I started at Adventure, what we were giving out the door, our tithe out the door was about 4%. And Jesus, because he's amazing and makes numbers somehow make sense that shouldn't make sense, in about two years got us to a place as an organization where 10% goes out the door. But 10% ain't the finish line, it's base camp. Right? Our hope is that we continue to inch that up and inch that up and inch that up and inch that up. We want to continue to support more organizations and more missionaries and more partners while also supporting ministry in this place and in, 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 in this town. It's a journey. I say all this to say it's a journey to get there. And so right now, you may look at your budget and go, Brad, I can't do 10%. What can you do? Where can you start? Let's start. Let's start and let's figure it out. Courageous generosity is what kills the monster of envy in your life. And when you and I become ready and willing to give and be generous to others with no side motivations, our perspectives and our pursuits begin to change. We're stewards, we're not owners. And because of that, what we do is we give generously of our time, of our resources, of our money, of our joy, of our goodness, and so on and so on. So you got a card in your seat, just like last week. you got a challenge. Right? Every week of this series, you're going to go home with a challenge. And here's the challenge, a handful of questions. Number one is this, can you identify, go home and think about this. If you're married, go ahead and have a conversation with your spouse about it. Or if you've got kids, pull your family in at the table. If you're single, again, you can have this conversation as well. These are things you can think about, you can process. Process this with a roommate or a friend, whoever it is. This isn't like a, a married single thing. Everybody can do this. Number one, can you identify where envy has its claws into your heart? And here's where you can know, where do you feel like you're in competition with somebody else that probably isn't real? Where do you gossip? Who do you resent? Where do you feel entitled? Those are great symptoms and signs of envy. Number two is this. This week, how can you celebrate the successes of others? Somebody in your office, somebody at school, somebody, a neighbor down the street gets good news. Something good happens to them. How can you be the first one to show up to go, I am so happy for you. Instead of going like, eh, well, I guess you got dead. Like, how can you be the person that goes, I'm so happy for you. That is so awesome. Let's celebrate. Next one is this. What, what would need to change for your perspective and pursuit to shift from earthly to kingdom? What are you looking for? What are you living for? Is it worth dying for? What is it? What needs to change? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. What are you seeking first right now? And this afternoon, here's the one we're going to step on toes. Before Monday, right? Here's the, that's the only thing. This afternoon before Monday, can you set aside a dollar amount that you're going to use this week to give away, to give to somebody else? It might be $5 a day. It might be $10 a day. It might be $1 a day. And you might be able to use this to pay for the person behind you in the Starbucks line at the drive-thru. Like, you can use this to buy coffee for a coworker, right? If you go, if, again, at school, it might be to, to buy a soft drink for a friend, you might be able to give away two, two nickels, two pennies. It's okay. It's okay. Jesus, Jesus doesn't look at it and go, well, you're not any more than that. In fact, Jesus tells a story about a widow who gives two, right, two pretty much worthless coins right next to a, a guy who just un, unloads all of these riches. And Jesus says, I'll tell you who gave more, the widow, because she gave all she had. Jesus, it's a heart thing right? What can you give? And if you're not currently tithing here at Adventure, how can you start? That's the last one. It may not be possible. It may not be possible to get to 10% right off the bat. It's okay. It wasn't for me and Christy, 
right? It wasn't for us early on in ministry, right? We had to figure out how to get there. We had to work a plan to get there. It wasn't, it wasn't the case at Adventure. Adventure, it was a journey. It was a multi-year journey to get to a place where we are sending 10% of our operating budget out the door. 10%, you may not be there yet, but maybe it's 5%. Maybe it's 1%. Again, start on the path. And it's not to keep the lights on. It's not so that we can buy fancy stuff. It's an exercise in faith. It's trust that, God, you're going to make up in this, in this space of whatever percent I'm able to give in this moment at this time. You're going to make up. Why? Because I'm seeking your kingdom first, and I trust your promise that all of the things I need will be added to me. I'm going to pray for us, and the band's going to sing a song. This is an opportunity for us to, to, to worship a God that provides. This is an opportunity for us to, to worship a God who never fails, who always shows up, who doesn't break promises. One of the things I always find interesting is that whenever in the past churches that I've been a part of, we've done financial series, we've talked about things like envy, greed, and selfishness, money, wealth, possessions. Usually those, those are the series where we have the most baptisms and decisions for Jesus. Why? Not because, it, not because we take a look at our wallets, but because we take a look at our hearts. We realize the things that we're pursuing are meaningless. We realize that things have got their claws into us, their fangs into us that are poisoning our lives. And the only one that can save us is Jesus, and he does not fail. That's available for you today. If you've never said yes to Jesus, he does not fail. He does not break promises. If you want to join this church, be a part of this place, be a part of this family that's just looking to get Jesus and people in the same room, like Christy said, to bring hope wherever we go, hope in the name of Jesus, hope like none other. Love to meet you down front. If you need prayer today, there'll be some folks down front on either side as the folks in the back would love to pray for you. If you just want to spend some time at the cross, you can do that as well. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to worship together. Jesus, we love you. We do thank you that you never fail, that you never quit, that your pursuit of us, while some may call it reckless, you call it necessary. There's nothing that you won't push through. There's no hard truth, hard conversation that you won't have. Why? Because you love us that much. You love us, you love us enough to tell us the truth. You love us enough to never give up on us, to give up your life for us to offer us a life that's unlike anything else. But that life, Jesus, comes from us submitting to you, putting you on the throne of our lives. So Jesus, I ask today, would you sit on the throne of the hearts and the lives and the souls in this room? Jesus, would you go to war with envy? Jesus, would you give us the courage to be generous? Father, we love you and we pray all this in your name. Amen.